You're listening to the Selling Energy Podcast, turbocharging the success of sales professionals around the world. Here's your host, Wall Street Journal bestselling author and award-winning sales trainer, Mark Jewell. The correct response to the wrong request. Too many salespeople tell every prospect the same thing, either because they're lazy or because they're not taking the time to evaluate each prospect's particular situation and needs. As a result, those salespeople fail to deliver messages that truly resonate with their prospects. The result, an unnecessarily low closing ratio. I remember reading a fabulous story about this concept of telling people what they really need to hear. The story described a sales professional was offering a complicated service in the context of a complex bid process where the final step was making a one-hour formal presentation to the folks who would ultimately select the winning bidder. His competing bidders had squandered their respective one-hour presentations, essentially reading a synopsis of their respective proposals. This final bidder, however, took a different tack. In the opening minute of the meeting, he said, everybody else probably came here and read you their proposal. We have more respect for you than that. We know that you can read. What I'd like to do is spend the next 59 minutes telling you what should have been in your request proposal, or RFP, and how much exposure you'll have if you select a bidder based on the requirements and evaluation criteria as they now stand in your RFP. What do you think happened? Everyone in the room listened very intensely. They soon realized how many blind spots they had failed to anticipate when drafting their RFP. Not surprisingly, they canceled the original RFP, and the one that took its place was very much in line with the changes recommended by this final bidder. Once the new RFP was out on the street, it was an obvious choice to select the bidder who had opened the prospect's eyes to the shortcomings of the original one. This is yet another example of the effectiveness of being a challenger rather than a relationship builder. Look for ways to customize your offering to better fit the needs of your prospects, and don't be afraid to challenge your expectations. They'll likely thank you for it in the end. Three-sentence prospecting. Assuming you have a strong understanding of who your key customers are and which customer profiles you're most interested in pursuing, what's the most efficient way to capture the attention of new prospects? I've found the three-sentence email to be a great tool for opening conversations with new prospects quickly and effectively. Here's how it works. Analyze your list of customers and separate it into groups based on building type, building size, building age, and any other relevant factors that define your ideal target. Then, search for buildings that have similar attributes. Once you've made a list of potential buildings to target, send each one of them a three-sentence email similar to the following, which has been customized to target a particular common area lighting upgrade. Number one, as you may have noticed, we recently upgraded the common area lighting in the Citibank building at 100 Main Street, improving lighting levels by 20% while reducing the energy use by more than 40%. Sentence number two, It occurred to me the other day as I passed your ground floor lobby that you're currently using the same lighting technology that we replaced at 100 Main Street. Sentence number three. If you'd be interested in exploring how we could extend the success we delivered for 100 Main Street to your building, I'd be open to a conversation. It's as simple as that. There are several things to note about this very streamlined and highly effective prospecting email. First, offering a noteworthy project and specific saving statistics demonstrates that this is not your first rodeo. Please also note that the increase in lighting levels was mentioned before energy savings, realizing that most building managers are more concerned with curb appeal than energy efficiency when it comes to their main lobbies. Second, highlighting a successful case study within a block or two of your prospect's building certainly makes it more real. He may know the owner or manager of the building you cited. 
He may even pass the building on his way to and from work, which will remind him to reply to your email if he hasn't already done so. Third, using the word exploring in the final sentence suggests a very low-pressure first meeting. It implies that you don't know whether your services would be appropriate or not. However, you're willing to explore the possibilities with your prospect. Saying, I'd be open to a conversation, also subliminally reinforces that this is not going to be a high-pressure sales call. The wording is almost coy in tone, which is a good thing, as you position yourself as an expert who agrees to meet with potential clients that they're urging, but who does not force the issue if they're not genuinely interested at the end of the day. Handled properly, this solicitation style will yield amazing results for you. You can use the same three-sentence approach when cold calling as well. You're the connection. The more you think of yourself as the connection between a product or service that is available and someone who needs it, the more effective a sales professional you'll be. This shift in perspective can have an enormous impact on your performance across the board. A recent attendee at our Efficiency Sales Professional Bootcamp recommended a book called The Psychology of Sales Call Reluctance by George W. Dudley and Shannon L. Goodson. It's quite a thick tome. My first reaction upon seeing the book was that someone could delay making cold calls for a very long time if he merely elected to read it cover to cover rather than picking up the phone. <laughs> it's been said that one of the easiest to visualize the most helpful tricks for overcoming cold call reluctance is to imagine that you're calling your prospect to return his or her wallet, which we'll assume you found in the back of a taxi cab. Why is this little thought experiment so helpful? Because if properly visualized, it will have a dramatic effect on the way you're going to address the person who answers your call. For one thing, the gatekeeper is not going to pre-qualify you with 20 questions if it appears you're calling to give rather than to take. And the way you communicate while you're in this mental zone will definitely give the impression that you have something important and valuable to offer. Staying with the scenario for just another moment, how much do you think that hypothetical lost wallet is really worth? Let's assume your prospect is well-heeled and has great taste in leather goods. Say it's a Toomey wallet lined up with a couple of hundred dollars of cash your prospect had just withdrawn from the ATM. It also holds a few high-limit credit cards, a driver's license, and perhaps some other items that were relatively easy to cancel or replace. The whole value of the prize? Probably less than $500, including the labor of his assistant, who would wind up replacing the wallet and reporting the credit cards lost. Now, let's return to the real reason for your call, an expense-reducing capital project with a projected life of a decade or more. What's the net present value, or NPV, of the energy-saving solution you're about to introduce to this prospect? Is it $500? How about $5,000? How about $50,000? If you're selling complex solutions, the NPV might well exceed half a million dollars. Think about it. That's equivalent to returning 1,000 lost wallets worth $500 a piece. Now, why would you ever hesitate to pick up the phone to return 1,000 wallets? Don't ask yourself, why would this guy want to take my phone call? You should be asking instead, why in the world would this person not want to take my phone call? It's as if I found 1,000 of his wallets in the back of a taxi cab and I'm calling to return them. Regardless of which mind game you deploy to overcome cold call reluctance, always remember one thing. You have something valuable to offer, and you are the connection that links your prospect to that value. Going the extra mile. Selling efficiency takes perseverance, creativity, and a willingness to go the extra mile. Here's a story about a colleague, we'll call him Nick, who did just that to close an important sale. Nick was proposing to retrofit a small city street lighting with LED heads. The project made a lot of sense both economically and environmentally. Unfortunately, he faced resistance from the city's public works director who told him, 
hey, sounds great in theory. We can't do it because we don't know how many street lights we actually have. The streets department knows its records are off. And although the utility invoices each month for the number of pole connections it says we have, we're pretty sure it doesn't have the right inventory either. Bottom line, we don't want to take on a project. We don't know really how many LED replacement heads we need to buy. Now, you're probably thinking, for goodness sake, how far apart are the city and utilities estimates of streetlights be? Besides, why not just ask the vendors to quote the job with add-deduct unit pricing and make sure that the contract specifies the maximum number of fixtures that are authorized for retrofit? Now, after advancing these or similar arguments in vain, most salespeople would probably walk away, defeated before they began. Nick, however, was a true sales professional. He was not about to leave this project undone. So what did he do? That weekend, he jumped in his pickup truck with a friend who agreed that the task that they were about to undertake was both crazy and cool. The two of them literally drove each and every street within the city limits and counted every single streetlight. That's right, every darned one of them. Now, with his newly minted streetlight inventory in hand, Nick knew he could create a compelling proposal. The city could now rest assured that it had an accurate count. Perhaps even more importantly, the public works director owed Nick and his buddy a debt of gratitude for producing in a single weekend something that neither the streets department nor the utility had been able to deliver for years. Sometimes you have to play the adult in the relationship and go the extra mile to make people play nice. Sometimes you need to do some lateral thinking and serve as a catalyst because left to their own devices, too many prospects would remain in their respective silos and just never get the job done. It's not always easy. However, if you collect the right data at the right time, and present it in a persuasive way, you might just turn a skeptical prospect into a true believer. Why stop with a single press? Have you maximized the revenue potential of your customer base? Do you have customers who could really benefit from some of your newer products or services? Take a few minutes right now to think about how you might close new sales with existing customers. For the sake of analogy, imagine that your customers are olives. You want to make sure that for every olive that you touch, you don't just press it once to get the extra virgin olive oil. You press it again to get the next grade of oil, and then again to get the next grade after that. Only after it's been reduced to a dry pulp do you finally toss that olive into a compost pile or perhaps feed it to the farm animals. The moral of the story? Too many salespeople in the efficiency business just go for the first press, and then they move on. That's a tremendous squandering of potential revenue, right? Now, how do you make sure that you're not doing what I just described? Well, you measure account performance quantitatively, perhaps the number of transactions or total revenues generated per customer over the last fiscal year. Let's make it personal. What were your average number of transactions and revenues per customer last year? If you work at a company with multiple salespeople, here's a great agenda item for your next sales meeting. Challenge each of your colleagues to research and calculate the highest number of transactions and the highest amount of revenues he or she attained with a single customer in the last 12 months. In a group of 10 salespeople, you'll likely see a range. One sale, seven sales, three sales. The spread on revenues per customer will likely be even more pronounced. Now once you hear the figures, you'll find yourself asking, wait a second, what did you do to get seven sales out of the same customer in a single fiscal year? Well, I did this and this and oh, I did that as well. What's the next sentence out of your mouth? Well, if you're the sales manager, it had better be, uh, Mr. One Sale, your job is to take Mr. Seven Sales to lunch this week so he can explain to you what he does to nurture relationships through account development. And how about this? I'll pick up the tab for your lunch, and then you could pick up the tab for all the incremental income tax you're going to be paying this coming year once you start applying what Mr. Seven Sales is going to tell you he's already doing to turbocharge his own commissions. <laughs>